Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome to another release of Investor Stories. On this installment, the experts talk about their investment philosophy, how they evaluate early stage startups, and how that may be unique from other venture investors. Here is the segment called Venture Investor Strategy. On today's special segment, we have John Houston. John, you've been very generous with me sharing your investment philosophy and the ways that you look at critical due diligence risks and pre-investment discipline, as well as post-investment management. Would you take a few minutes to talk about your investment strategy and how you evaluate startups for investment? Yes. At a high level, I have three major approaches to due diligence. Got to like the person, think they deserve to win, and they admit they need help. And I think it can be a good investment. But the most important thing to me is the exit. And by that, I mean, who really is going to drive it? I've said that many times. But working back from the exit, I want to make certain that the people who will be orchestrating the exit are good at it. And if they're VCs, I will not presume there's exit goal congruence with the angels. So that's a risk that personally tends to make me more hesitant to invest in deals where I know VCs will drive the exit because they're loyal to their LPs, just like I'm loyal to the Houston household, particularly my wife. (laughs) And I wouldn't expect them to care about the Houston household. And I certainly don't want them to care about my wife. (laughs) So, So we really have different concerns. I'm not whining. It's just the reality. And so when it comes to the exit, I am trying to, as my return for the angel group, as well as if I'm on the board, all shareholders, but particularly for the entrepreneurs. And if I know that the VCs are driving the exit, I really have to believe that the company can attract top tier expert VCs at exits before I get excited. I guess I just can't say it enough about the exit risk and who's driving the exit. And that dovetails with the financing risk that concerns me, which is how much money has to be raised and can they raise it. One other thing I'd say, Nick, that I'd like to believe I'm better at is I don't as frequently get involved in short-funded early rounds. As I look back my first five years in the business, there's far too many times that that we really short-funded the company, the initial angel round. We didn't buy them enough runway to really take off. And you know where that leads. They really haven't proven the business model. They really haven't done much. They have run out of all cash, and they're coming back to investors saying, just give me a little bit more, and we will get the necessary traction. Too many investors get fatigued, and the company is crash, burn, and die. So I think 
I place more emphasis than ever on dimensioning the first round and ensuring that it buys enough runway to get airborne, where I fumbled that frequently in my first five years. That was the number one cause of my losses as I look back at it. Investor fatigue caused by insufficient runway. Do you look at that as sort of an absolute dollar raise amount, or do you try and calculate the burn rate for the next, call it 12 to 24 months, and then see how much time runway the raise will buy them? I calibrate with this really elegant question, and it goes like this, and I ask it every time. So let's put off to the side the amount of this round, and let's presume you have raised it. You were accurate in your burn rate. You have six months cash left in the bank at your burn rate. And now you are going to raise the next round. Tell me the story that you feel you've got to tell the A1 investors so that you can accomplish the following things. First of all, you can get it done in six weeks so that you can get back to actually running the company. Secondly, you will be able to attract at least 50% of the investors will be new money. So you get new smart wallets. And thirdly, that you will be able to warrant at least a 25% uptick in value. Stand up right now and and make the pitch. Give me the five bullet points that you will be pitching to the A1 investors at that pitch party so that you're confident you can meet those three criteria. Uptick, fast, new, smart, meaningful money. The issue to me is proper dimension of the first round. That's something that took me a long time to learn. I short-funded too many companies. So now, before I agree to the size of this round they want me to invest in or lead, I want them to tell me the pitch that they will be making after they burn through this round, with the exception of, let's say, six months burn in the bank. And what compelling pitch will they be able to make to the A1 investors, call that the next round, that will enable them to get at least a 25% uptick in valuation? And they can close the round within six weeks, and they can attract smart, meaningful money. Translated as 50% of the dollars are from new checkbooks. On today's special segment, we have David Brown. David, can you describe your thesis or philosophy on startup investing and how it may be unique from other practitioners? You know, I think the thing that is unique about Techstars is creating this communal environment to help startups and the original investment, especially in the early years, the amount of money was very modest, $18,000. But the real investment here is that you bring them in early, right? And you get them in the communal environment, you get to know them really well. And then when you go ahead and uh, make subsequent investments in them, it's because you've really got to uh, know them over a period of time and understand really needs the capital and who's going to be successful uh, with it. Are there certain sectors or verticals and or thermals that you guys monitor or are looking for? Yeah, I mean, we don't focus around specific verticals other than in the vertical programs that we run. So of the 15 programs that uh, Techstars runs, about half of them are what we call the horizontal programs. We don't have any area, any thesis around a particular vertical other than they're generally internet hardware companies. Right. Um, And then the other half are the vertical programs. When we run with Disney or all entertainment and media companies, the ones that we run with Barclays Bank are all around fintech. The ones we run with Cap around education, edtech, etc. And so, in those particular programs, we have a thesis around a particular vertical. But in the ones that are horizontal, we don't. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, 
and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. On today's special segment, we have Jason Heltzer of Origin Ventures. Jason, can you talk about your thesis and also how you evaluate early stage startups for investment and maybe mention aspects of your approach that may be unique from other venture investors? One of the things I try to think about, and this is something that Jim Schrager is a professor at Booth taught me when I was a student, is you really have to unpack the strategy of a business first. Because without understanding how a company is going to compete, it's really difficult to understand the key questions. To me, I want to get down to what are the key drivers of value in a business, and I want to get to that as quickly as possible. And and in the initial meeting, that's what I really focus on, is what things have to happen for this to be a valuable business, and how does the company make that happen? And when I do that, and, and this is a part of our thesis, if I can figure that out really quickly in the evaluation, I can get to those key questions much faster. And so much about venture is, you're only investing in a very small fraction of investments and deals you look at. The faster you can come to those conclusions, the faster you can distill down a company strategy, the more efficient you're going to be, and the more time you can spend thinking about the ones that are on the margin, the ones you think really have potential, uh, the more time you can spend helping your companies. And so to me, that has been a key part of how I've evaluated deals in my career. Our thesis as an investor, we are like a lot of funds where we, we believe in, in the growth of technology and you see the shift towards mobile, you see the growth in e-commerce. You know, all those things are, again, being kept in obvious, you, you can see them. I don't think that distinguishes us. What I do think is happening in our marketplace, and I think it's, it's a profound change in the marketplace, that you think about venture capital really hasn't changed that much since, since World War II when a General Dorio really kicked off modern venture capital after World War II. Crowdfunding, I think, is going to force a major change in the industry. And if I think about our thesis, we think about that a lot. And we think about how do we change as a fund to differentiate? How do we change as a fund to incorporate the benefits of crowdfunding? Uh, There's a lot of strategic thought that we've put into how we evolve as a venture fund. Look, venture funds have these long-term arrangements with their LPs for fee income. And while if you have lousy returns, you can't raise another fund, you do have fee income streams for long periods of time. And so it's ironic because it's an industry where we're in the business of disruption and funding disruption, but our industry hasn't changed in the course of you know 60 years. And so I think that's changing now with crowdfunding. And so for us, it's thinking about how do we do better at the things that we can do better that crowdfunding has a harder time doing. 
And that's a big part of our strategic thinking. And you'll see changes from us in the coming months and coming year where you'll see how we go to market and how we operate to be different. And I'm really excited to roll out those changes. Some of them are happening now. Based on your comment about what is driving the core value in the business, is that more about you understanding the dynamics of a particular vertical or sector? Or is that more the entrepreneur being able to communicate the business plan, what's unique, and how it's going to be defensible? You know, I would say it's part what's the industry dynamic is happening with competition. What's the unique unfair advantage in the company and how it creates value? But again, it does boil down to strategy. You know, if you are a low-cost provider, that's that's a strategy, right? Understanding, okay, how do they maintain the low cost? And is that sustainable? Is that defensible? That's a really important set of questions that, yeah, you could look at intellectual property. You could look at all sorts of other aspects of that business. It may be completely irrelevant if they can't maintain a low-cost provider mentality. Okay, so if you have new technology, you have to understand, does it work? Can it be defended? Do people care? I mean, there's a lot of great technologies (laughs) that are superior technologically. Betamax is superior technologically. You know, look at Token Ring versus Ethernet. Token Ring is a much better algorithm. Ethernet is pretty stupid how it works. So you look at those kind of things, but there are a lot of other factors that make technology businesses successful. And so for us, it's understanding those key value drivers. And also taking a holistic view of value, too. It's not always revenue. Um, It's strategic relationships. It's other things, too. I'd love to read a book that talks about standard protocols and how they became the standard, even when they're not the best protocol. Yeah, I mean, you could could even make the argument for Windows. I mean, Windows, (laughs) if you look at Unix, especially X-Windows, which is, you know, an older product, or even, you know, even look at the next machines that Steve Jobs did, they, they had multitasking inherent in the operating system really, really early, multi-threading everything, where you could run two pieces of software at the same time. Microsoft Windows, I mean, that didn't come until much later. I think it was 95, maybe even 98 when it was truly implemented. So if you, you look at that and say, boy, how, how is that possible? I mean, the answer was there was more software. That was it, period. You know, uh, Microsoft had a very open system and engaged the developers and Apple was pretty closed, and, and Unix was very complicated, and most Unix machines didn't have a graphical user interface for some time. And so it, it often is a lot of externalities and network effects that make the difference there, not so much better technology. How things have changed. Yeah. <laughs> that will wrap up this installment of Investor Stories. Head over to thefullratchet.net to leave a comment, sign up for the newsletter, or find resources discussed on any of the episodes. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening.